1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network for New Books in Law. I'm Shivana Musa and I'll be your host today, speaking to Professor Sean Murphy on his new book, Litigating War, Mass Civil Injury and the Eritrea-Ethiopia Claims Commission. Dealing with a commission that was formed in the aftermath of the two-year conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia in 1998-2000, this book goes to the heart and intricacies of the establishment, procedures and jurisprudence of this extraordinary commission. Pursuant to the Algiers Agreement, the Commission was, through binding arbitration, given the not-so-easy task of deciding on claims for loss, damage or injury by one government against the other, and by nationals of one party against the government of the other, with issues not simply conflict-related, but also on more broader questions of international humanitarian law and international law violations.' This book is certainly a comprehensive study on the eritrea ethiopia Commission, to say the least, and deals with crucial issues of the Commission's life that, despite their importance, have been sorely overlooked by previous literature. And if I may take my introduction of this book one step further, it could well be, if not already, the go-to book for anyone wishing to learn about this Commission and its context. So I think it's high time that I introduce the guest of our show today, Professor Sean Murphy. Professor Murphy is the Patricia Roberts-Harris Research Professor of Law at George Washington University, specifically within the fields of public international law and U.S. foreign relations law. He's also a member of the United Nations International Law Commission, and before his current post at George Washington University, was legal counselor at the U.S. Embassy in The Hague. His career has seen him represent both the U.S. government and several other countries in many matters before various international courts, such as the ICJ and ICTY. And in addition, he has written and published extensively on topics relating to international law. Professor Murphy, thank you for agreeing to talk about your new book with us here at the New Books Network.
0: Well, thank you very much, Siobhan. It's a great pleasure to, uh, to be with you and I would be remiss if I didn't note that there is also two co-authors to the book, uh, Juan Kadani and Tom Snyder, who also were uh, instrumental in pulling together the uh, the analysis that we're providing in the book.
1: Precisely, I was I was just about to get to that actually because my next question, um, I, I've briefly outlined some aspects of your very fruitful career, but of course you collaborated um, on with. Juan Cadane and Thomas Snyder, as you've just said. So so the natural course of action here would be for me to ask how exactly this book came about um, in relation to to your career and also uh, just the, the lead up to it.
0: Well, as you indicated, uh, I have uh, represented uh, governments uh, in various international courts and tribunals over the past 20, 25 years or so, And um, as it turned out, I was approached by the government of Ethiopia to assist them with respect to these uh, particular arbitrations before the Eritrea-Ethiopia Claims Commission. So from about 2002 until 2008, um, I was part of the team of lawyers helping the government of Ethiopia. In bringing the claims before the Commission and uh, both preparing the written briefs and doing the oral argument. Uh, Tom Snyder, who is a uh, counsel in private practice, was also a part of that team. And Juan Kadani, who is currently a professor of law at the University of Seattle, was a part of the team. There were other members of the uh, Ethiopian team, but the three of us were on it throughout the process. Um, the process ended, uh, for the governments in 2008, uh, and then ultimately the final arbitral award came out in 2009. Um, so we didn't proceed to write the book at that point. I, I myself was actually hoping that someone else might take up the task. It had been a major, uh, bilateral claims commission. Uh, there was an awful lot of very interesting, issues concerning both the establishment of the commission and its procedural and substantive law. And I thought perhaps someone in 2009, 2010, 2011 would perhaps come out with, as you put it, the go-to book uh, for the uh, the commission. Uh, when I saw that that wasn't happening, uh, I became concerned that perhaps we might lose um, some of that uh, analysis uh, and information that uh, really does have to be gathered up uh, at some point, uh, not too long after a commission finishes its work. And so um, I put together the idea of this book and uh, pitched it to uh, the publisher, Oxford University Press, Uh, They were delighted with the idea and were delighted when I brought on the two co-authors. So that's basically how it came about. And I think that we feel we did uh, pull together all the types of information that we needed uh, to to make it a useful book. I might also note that we thought it would be useful not just to provide in-depth analysis of these issues, but also in the back half of the book to reproduce the actual arbitral awards and decisions issued by the commission so that uh, someone interested in the tribunal could go to this book, uh, could read the arbitral awards for themselves, uh, and then also find within the book separately analysis of those awards with all the useful cross-references so that you can go back and forth, uh, thereby hopefully making it, as you suggested, a go-to book for anyone interested in the uh, commission.
1: Thank you very much. One particular aspect of the book, which I find quite novel, is that you do place the commission in context as opposed to dealing with it as a standalone process. Um, In that case, could you briefly outline the background of the war and what exactly led to the establishment of the Commission and what you sort of state as the post-war relationship, so to speak.
0: Well, the war began in 1998 and went through uh, the summer of 2000, ultimately leading to a peace agreement in December of 2000. Uh, It started as what many thought would be just a frontier conflict uh, scenario where uh, maybe just some troops were moving across the border and there was uh, minimal localized uh, engagement. Unfortunately, it got um, worse and worse and worse. It became a very bloody war with uh, many lives lost, uh, many people displaced from their homes, uh, large amounts of property damage, uh, much of it happening along the border between Ethiopia and Eritrea, but it also having collateral spillover effects uh, with respect to nationals of those con- uh, countries who were in the other country, um, perhaps uh, miles or kilometers from the, the, the battle lines, but nevertheless affected as enemy aliens uh, in essence. Uh, lots of property um, possessed by one side uh that was owned by the persons or the government of the other side uh ultimately significant aerial uh, bombardments took place um sanctions being imposed that blocked uh the ability of properties to move across borders um persons being detained in uh civilian internment uh large numbers of uh, military personnel taken as prisoners of war um and therefore, for about uh you know two years, you had a very serious uh high level uh armed conflict that uh concerned not just the two parties but uh African states in the region and uh the African Union as a whole uh and ultimately the security council as well, which did not take any specific action to. Uh, address the situation, but did express its concern about it and call for the parties to uh, to stand down and return to their uh, positions and situation as of May 1998 when the conflict broke out. So a very serious, uh, large-scale armed conflict, very unfortunate that it uh, took place, uh, but ultimately one that was um, ended in the summer of 2000 with a cessation of hostilities agreement and then brought to a definitive conclusion in December of 2000 with the final peace agreement
1: Okay, thank you very much in particular what I want to know is is was the commission the only option? Were other options considered when thinking about ways to uh, deal with loss and injury?
0: Yeah, I would say that um, there were so, I'm, I'm hedging a little bit here because I was not involved in the um, negotiations that led to that final peace agreement. I, I came in to the process uh, after the agreement was completed. Uh, my impression is that uh, it was a, a complex negotiation, um, that uh, the two sides uh, each had their positions as to what it is they felt. Uh, they needed to bring about a definitive uh, peace agreement. Uh, it's not publicly known whether both sides uh, wanted a claims commission, um, but presumably at least one, if not both, of the governments sought the commission uh, because it did become Article 5 of the uh, peace agreement. Um, certainly, uh, there were uh, prior types of ways that governments had resolved armed conflict uh, and dealt with situations relating to claims. And no doubt the two governments were thinking about those options when they uh, were drafting the final peace agreement. Um, I think probably many are aware of the way wars can be ended without any attention to claim settlement processes. So one option is to simply say, um, we know that damage has been done, but it's either too hard or too politically um, problematic for us to try to address claims. Uh, when you have a large scale war, there's typically large scale harm that occurs. And consequently, if you do go down the claims path, it may mean very substantial findings regarding compensation. And so, uh, you know, you're taking on a lot, a lot if you decide that is the path you want to pursue. So one option is simply not to do it at all and leave the matter to something else, some other way of, of addressing the matter, um, that doesn't relate to a interstate claim settlement uh, process. A different option is to try to quantify whatever you think the damage is, and at the time of the peace agreement, write it in to the agreement that one side or the other side owes X million dollars or euros and uh, and leave it at that. The problem with that option is it does require you to actually quantify at a fairly early stage what you think the claims uh, should be valued at, and that often is going to be uh, quite problematic. So then you might start thinking about something like a claims commission or possibly uh, an existing forum uh, such as the International Court of Justice. Uh, in principle, there's no reason why you couldn't take a matter such as this before a court like the ICJ. Um, I think probably the downside of doing that is that the ICJ is not well structured to handle a mass claims process. Um, It tends to operate more in a uh, process where it's looking at specific violations and it's going deep into the the facts and circumstances of a a particular uh, violation of a particular treaty or uh, something of that sort. Here you had uh, thousands um, of individualized claims that if you litigated them out one by one it would take uh... years if not decades and so using some kind of process that could be more expedited that could handle mass claims in a manner that would uh... be rougher justice but nevertheless acceptable in terms of the standards of prior uh... claims uh... commissions uh... was no doubt an attractive option and so that is what the two countries ultimately decided to do, uh, set up a bilateral claims commission that de novo would be created and would um, uh, find a way to redress these uh, uh, numerous and various types of, of claims.
1: Could you possibly elaborate a little bit on what kinds of issues the commission had to deal with? What was it mandated to do? Maybe you could talk about what James Crawford mentions at the start of the book when he uh, talks about the disagreement with your approval of the Commission's decision to take jurisdiction over Ethiopia's use ad bellum claim. I'm also thinking of other issues Uh with regard to the exclusion of issues not concerning Article 5 of the Algiers Agreement and the perhaps non-deliberation of pre-war and post-war governmental conduct. Could you possibly go into to these issues?
0: Absolutely. Uh, the commission was set up pursuant to the uh, December 2000 agreement. Uh, and as is true with all commissions, was given a... Jurisdiction that was not just free ranging, uh, but was, uh, limited, uh, to certain things. And so basically the commission was being asked to address claims relating to the armed conflict, uh, that resulted in a loss, uh, or damage, uh, to either Ethiopian and Eritrean nationals or their governments um, when that loss or damage was the result of a violation of international law. So that you know, generalized standard means that there's various things the commission could deal with and various things it could not. Um, the claims did have to relate to the armed conflict. So as you indicated, claims that the two sides might have had prior to the armed conflict Weren't within the jurisdiction of the commission. And that, of course, requires you to make a judgment as to when did the armed conflict occur. And the commission said May uh, 1998 is when it uh, began. It also means you can't deal with claims arising after the armed conflict has ended. Um, and uh, the commission said that that happened in December of 2000. Um, of course, there's some tricky issues there where what, what if some kind of conduct begins prior to December 2000, but arguably there's a carryover effect to post-December 2000? Is that within the commission's uh, jurisdiction? And so we had some issues that arose where the commission had to try to refine that sense of its temporal jurisdiction. Uh, separate from that, uh, you did have to show a violation of international law. So it wasn't good enough just to say um, this person's home was destroyed during the war. You had to show that the damage was the result of some illegal act. Um, so in the normal course of warfare, of course, you may end up having collateral civilian harm from a lawful military operation it's not enough to just say the house was destroyed you have to show that it was the product of for instance indiscriminate shelling uh... of uh, civilian areas where there was no concrete military advantage being uh, served uh... so you know that too was a limit on the way that the commission could uh... decide these cases Um, As you indicated, James Crawford in the um, preface to the book um, uh, raised an issue as to whether the commission should have decided a particular type of claim, and that is a claim relating to basically who started the war or who violated the use ad bellum. And one of the issues there was... Uh, article 5 of the claims agreement set up the uh, Claims Commission, but there was a different article of the December 2000 agreement that called for a, a different kind of investigation by a panel to be set up uh, under the auspices of the African Union into the origins of the war. Uh, that panel was never set up, and so there was never any particular finding that came out of it. Um, but the question that was raised uh, by uh, Eritrea in particular was, uh, did that uh, uh, possible uh, fact-finding commission under a different article of the December 2000 agreement mean that this claims commission itself should not be looking at the facts and the law relating to the outbreak of the war. Uh, ultimately, the claims commission said they felt they did have jurisdiction over a use ad bellum claim. I think their their principal point was that even if that other fact finding commission could have been set up, um, uh, it had no uh, authority to address. Uh, the use ad issue. That is, was there a violation of international law and that the commission felt they therefore were doing something different than what that other fact-finding group might have done. Um, so they did proceed to decide the U.S.A.D. ad on issue. I, I would note that one reason why I asked James Crawford to write the preface was that one concern I had about the book was the three co-authors were all persons who had represented Ethiopia, and, uh, I did not want this book in any sense to, uh, either in fact or in perception, uh, come across as a Ethiopian, uh, version of the, the, the commission and its, uh, jurisprudence. James Crawford represented Eritrea on the other side, so I, I very much hoped he would read the book and in the preface indicate whether he thought it was valuable. Uh, and he does in the preface. So I was very pleased to see that. I think it also was a good thing that we did not write this book immediately after the ending of the arbitral process, because, uh, you know, after a few years as the, uh, the uh, sort of passions of uh, the litigator subside, it allows you to move more into a dispassionate look at the, uh, the jurisprudence of the, uh, the commission, and I hope that's what we've achieved.
1: Yeah, th- that actually, you preempted one of my uh, next questions with regard to you being all on the Ethiopian side, so to speak. So um, I'm glad you sort of uh, talked about that very briefly. But sticking to the usad bellum point, if we if we may, I'd like to know how exactly the commission calculated the damages for this kind of violation, and how significant is this for future tribunals when we're thinking about the usad bellum.
0: Well, I think it, it's potentially very significant um, when you try to find uh, international court and tribunal decisions. In which a usad bellum claim is presented, um, and a finding of the violation of the usad bellum uh, exists, um, and there's uh, a, a decision uh, relating to reparations. There's very few decisions of that nature. Um, oftentimes, a claim may be made and it fails. Other times a claim may succeed, but it doesn't get to the reparations phase. So um, Nicaragua's claim against the United States in the mid-1980s would be a good example of that. A lot of law on the merits came out of that case, but nothing on reparations because uh, ultimately uh, Nicaragua withdrew the withdrew the claim. Uh, after relations had changed between uh, Nicaragua and the United States. So I think in this instance, with the Eritrea-Ethiopia Claims Commission, we have a very robust decision on the merits relating to a violation of the use at Bellum, and then a very robust treatment of uh, the reparations that should flow from that. Uh, it's a complicated story, uh, where uh, Ethiopia was pressing for wide-ranging uh, damages flowing from this violation because it was in its interests to argue for that. Eritrea, the country that had been found to violate the use of Bellum, by contrast, was trying to minimize damages, indeed even taking a position at one point that no damages should flow from a USAD Bellum violation in this context. Uh, the commission ultimately came out somewhere in between. Uh, it did award uh, damages, it did award compensation for the violation of the USAD Bellum, but they uh, did so in the context of a proximate causation standard uh, where they attempted to limit the damages to the types of harm that flowed relatively directly from the uh, violation of the USAD ad bellum. Uh, That didn't mean only damages in the first place on the border where Eritrean forces crossed over, Um, but it did mean that one looked at the sort of uh, range of military activity uh, that uh, relatively directly flowed from the first few months of the outbreak of the armed conflict and some other uh, aspects uh, that could be said to be relatively closely tied to the initial violation of the use ad bellum, and it awarded damages for that, but not for many other things that the commission thought were too remote, too speculative, um, or not supported by clear and detailed uh, evidence connecting it to the violation of the, uh, the use ad bellum. So it's a fascinating uh, part of the book, I think, and mostly appears in Chapter 4 uh, of the book. And I think that any future court or tribunal trying to wrestle with these same issues will, will find it very instructive to look at the jurisprudence of the Eritrea-Ethiopia Claims Commission on that issue.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that we could possibly talk about this use ad balam part of the commission endlessly, but I think right now it might be a good time to move on to the issue of burden of proof. I think it's it's quite fair to say that there was no mention uh, of rebuttal evidence. There was, of course, the burden of proving the facts that each party relied on to support its claim or defence, but nothing on the way of rebuttal evidence. And also, from what uh, I've discovered, no rules as to the standard of proof. Were these two elements not a much-needed gap to be filled? How did the Commission deal with these gaps?
0: Well, we do in Chapter 3 talk about uh, those evidentiary issues, uh, the burden of proof, the standard of proof, the types of evidence that the Commission found uh, probative uh, and there were a wide variety of types of evidence. We had uh, witness and expert testimony directly before the commission that uh, involved uh, uh, questions from the uh, government that was presenting the witness uh, cross-examination by the other side and uh, questions from the commission itself. Um, However, you know, it's limited in the amount of witness testimony you can use because it burns up a lot of time and it can be very effective, but it can also uh, be fairly limited in the scope of what uh, that type of evidence is achieving. So uh, most of the evidence was in the form of signed declarations by victims, by government officials, uh, by others a lot of documentary evidence uh, of one kind or another, Um, some amount of evidence coming from uh, reports by non-governmental organizations and things of that sort. So different kinds of information being provided to the commission. The commission ended up deciding that it felt that the party advancing the claim did have a burden to present clear and convincing evidence to the commission on uh that uh claim um and uh did uh, have to achieve a certain uh standard of that kind to, to prevail. Uh certainly the other side then would seek to rebut the evidence, would attempt to present its own uh evidence that called into question uh whether uh it was uh more likely or not that the uh the claim had been uh established And so there was a, you know, sort of a constant back and forth in in that regard. Um, I would say that one very difficult thing of a claims commission process of this type in terms of the typical burdens of proof and standards of proof is that when you're dealing with mass claims, you really can't litigate out the sort of individualized harm on a case-by-case basis. So what the commission had to do was to basically step back from uh, trying to figure out, you know, were specific persons harmed in specific ways in specific places, and instead try to see if they could establish a sort of pattern of uh, proven harms. Uh, was it the case that you could show relatively widespread harm against civilians in a particular area of a kind that was uh, demonstrating indiscriminate uses of force? And if so, then the commission would issue a finding that covered an entire geographic area for perhaps a particular period of time, Um even though the underlying evidence was only speaking to a smattering of places and persons. Um, So, in other words, the commission would have to extrapolate from a limited base of evidence a likelihood of a systematic harm occurring. And then, after reaching that decision on the merits, had to move to a very complicated process in terms of compensation in doing a similar sort of rough justice approach. So I think many involved in the process felt it was unsatisfactory in many ways because, um, you know, it, it's just not a process that, uh, is closely aligned with the way we would normally like to see a particular claim, uh, dealt with in a uh, national court, for example. But it really is the only way to do a process of this magnitude if you want to have it done in a reasonable number of years. And that was part of the charge of the December 2000 agreement that the commission should seek to uh, do this process uh, in a relatively expeditious fashion.
1: Okay. And in relation to this, we have, of course, the civilians that suffered many types of abuses. Um, These particular victims, of course, would require some justice. I I want to sort of link this in with the idea of transparency then. Of course, the pleadings themselves were kept confidential. And I think this is a quite... A crucial point especially when we think of the justice for the victims and their engagement of this so i'm i'm kind of more going on to the non-pecuniary elements such as memory forgiveness and truth and one quote that stands out from the book that uh yourself and the authors uses one by george santayana those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it could you talk about these ideas further and how their relationship uh with the commission, with the proceedings of the commission panned out?
0: Well, uh, it's a very important issue that you're raising, and um, we talk about it a bit in the course of the book and then even more so in our final chapter on the lessons learned. Um, you're absolutely right that the uh, written pleadings and the oral uh, pleadings before the tribunal were never made public. Um, so uh, even though there were witnesses that testified and, and uh, presentations as to wrongful acts that uh, one side or the other did, uh, none of that was made public during the proceedings or after the proceedings were concluded. Uh, the only publicly available information are the commission's own, awards and decisions um that's because the parties could not agree to make the uh pleadings public um certainly if both parties had been in in agreement it would have been possible to decide to release the uh the pleadings but they they didn't reach agreement on that so they they aren't uh, uh available to be read by by uh ethiopians and eritreans let alone others um in addition, I guess I would also note that, of course, the commission itself uh, sat in the Hague. It did not sit in the Horn of Africa, uh, certainly didn't sit in either of the two countries at issue. So there was also a certain amount of distance from the victims in that regard as well. And um, it all does speak to your point of, uh, is this a good thing? Um, I, I think there's probably two sides uh, that could be expressed. One would be the one I think you were alluding to, which is that it can help in the healing process uh, for uh, there to be considerable transparency uh, about uh, these uh, violations, um, allowing the victims to see that their voices were heard, um, that, uh very clear arguments and evidence were presented to this commission about what they uh, suffered and that when the commission reached a particular finding, uh, it's not just what the commission says in the award, but it's all the information behind that that were was presented to the commission that, that uh, led to that finding, that that might in some sense help the victims to recover from what they've suffered uh creates a historical record, um hopefully dissipates some of the ill will on one side or the other. Uh, those are all very positive values and they may not have been served uh entirely uh through this particular process. On the other hand, uh I think there's another side which says uh high transparency during the course of the process could significantly affect the process itself. Uh, there could be much greater, uh, politics, uh, playing out in the courtroom, uh, in the, uh, the ways in which the parties, uh, speak to the tribunal in their willingness to be candid about strengths and weaknesses of a particular claim. Um, you know, if you're playing to a public audience, uh, it may affect the dynamic of what can be done in a more um, uh, closed environment and in a way that's not helpful to a resolution of the claim. So for better or worse, the decision was made uh, that this process would basically be closed except for the the ultimate awards. Um, and there's some good aspects of that. And I think there's some downsides.
1: So we've talked about the non-pecuniary elements. Let's talk about the money now. The commission, in a sense, pursued justice for the victims through a sort of civil redress type mechanism over the the criminal prosecution. And uh, in the end, substantial sums of money were ordered to be paid by each respective government. I think, however, um, well, one thing I should say is that in the end, actually compensation was never paid out but what i was going to say is that realistically speaking if one were to look at the financial stability of the two countries in question even before the commission was actually established one possibly could have already predicted given the economic status of the, the two countries that they were not fit not fit to pay out any compensation anyway was this actually something that was considered beforehand
0: Well, since I wasn't involved in the lead up to the actual final December 2000 agreement, I don't know to what extent it was considered. If it was considered, um, nothing was done in the December 2000 agreement to address the issue. That is, there was no mechanism for funds to be set aside uh, in some kind of trust account. Uh, There was no uh, decision that you know, particular properties might be used as a means of uh, resolving claims. Uh, nothing of that sort, and it's a lessons learned. If in the future uh, the idea in the claims process is to, in fact, lead to payment of compensation, it may be that there needs to be some form of uh, uh, a trust account or something set up uh, as was done, for example, with the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal, uh, or some kind of resource made available, uh, as was done with the U.N. Compensation Commission relating to Iraq, in order to generate the funds that would uh, be used to pay the claims. I would say, though, that um, while payment of the money was uh, a, a key uh, potential objective here, I tend to think of uh, this as broken down into maybe four different elements. Uh, so one element is uh, there's claims that a government advances and the Commission says to the government, uh, no, your claim is bad. Uh, the facts are bad or your theory about the law is bad and therefore your claim is going to be denied. Uh, obviously no compensation is being paid in that context but it's a very useful finding uh, because the government thereafter is precluded from continuing to say, uh, I think I'm entitled to compensation based on the following uh, bad acts by the other side because the commission has definitively resolved that. The second category is when a government brings a claim and the commission says, you're right on the facts, you're right on the law but we don't think actually the proper reparation is compensation. Uh, we think uh, perhaps our finding is sufficient satisfaction. Uh, we think that you haven't proven that the damages actually were so bad that they merit compensation. And so there are two, uh, no requirement of paying compensation, but it definitively addresses the claim that the government uh, might have otherwise continued to rant and rave about in years to come. And I think that's a useful thing. The third category is the one you're, you're raising, which is you win on the, the merits. You win even on obtaining some kind of compensation, uh, but the compensation is never paid. That is what happened here. We had both sides winning uh, very substantial amounts of compensation, uh, almost uh, of a nature that they net each other out, um, and if the two countries were able to get together and and negotiate a bilateral uh, agreement on this, perhaps it would net out um, in some fashion, but uh, that hasn't been possible. um The fourth thing that that doesn't get talked about as much is even in the absence of the commission deciding these claims, uh the mere existence of the commission has some very important effects you alluded to one of them the the sort of recording of the history and uh the potential for allowing uh the victims to feel they've had some uh level of redress i'd like to point to one other issue that that happened which is quite interesting and that is um, right after the war ended December 2000 both sides continued to hold prisoners of war they were obligated uh, under the Geneva Conventions to repatriate those prisoners uh, expeditiously but they didn't do so they both felt they had reasons to hold on to the prisoners of war and it's only in late 2002 as the uh, hearing of the commission relating to prisoners of war is about to be heard that both sides in the fall of 2002 uh, suddenly release the prisoners of war that they're each holding. My interpretation of that is that neither side wanted to show up at the hearing, arguing that the other side was violating the third Geneva convention while they were still back home holding uh, prisoners of the other side uh, in a manner that seemed clearly uh, impermissible under international law. So this was sort of an out of the courtroom effect of the commission, completely divorced from compensation, but nevertheless, an enormously important thing, certainly for the persons who were being held uh, at that time. And so I do think that while compensation hasn't actually been paid, we, we do want to look at the broader potential ramifications of a process of this type, because I think it does extend beyond just the payment of money.
1: Yes, of course. And I think throughout this interview, what you've also alluded is its general development to international law as a whole. And perhaps if you could delve into that a little bit more, what then, generally speaking, in addition to the things that you've mentioned, has it contributed to international law?
0: Well, when you stop and think about it, most of the litigation and decisions we're seeing these days in the context of armed conflict are all coming out of the international criminal tribunals. Um, we have the International Criminal Court. We have the ad hoc tribunals for Rwanda and Yugoslavia. We have several sort of hybrid tribunals, Sierra Leone, Cambodia, and so on. Uh, generating important jurisprudence that's speaking about the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Regulations, uh, Protocol One, and so on. Uh, on the other hand, these are all criminal tribunals, so the standard uh, for finding a criminal violation probably is higher than in a civil context um and also confined to particular things, grave breaches, for example, of the Geneva Conventions rather than uh, violations generally of the, Bene- uh, G- the Geneva Conventions. So I think one of the things that's fascinating about the Eritrea-Ethiopia Claims Commission is that you had in a civil context uh, very wide-ranging decisions about not just... Um, things we've talked about so far, but uh, battlefield conduct, uh, the uh, uh, physical uh, and mental abuse of civilians in the context of battlefield operations, for example, um, looting of private and public property, uh, destruction of that kind of property, uh, including cultural artifacts, a very important stella. Uh, was a central feature of one of the claims that Eritrea uh, brought. Um, environmental damage, uh, use of landmines, artillery shelling, displacement of civilians as a violation of uh, the laws of war. Uh, aerial bombardment, where we have important issues as to, you know, what types of facilities can be attacked. Can you attack a airfield that has both a civilian and military dual use for example can you attack a electric power station that is being used perhaps in part for military purposes but also that serves civilian purposes same issue with respect to attacking a water uh, reservoir um Lots of issues about the detention of individuals. I mentioned the prisoners of war. You know, what is it uh, that constitutes mistreatment of POWs? How do you need to treat them when they're captured, uh, when you're transporting them to a PW camp? Once you get them to a camp, what are the requirements for providing them with food, uh, with medical care? Uh, Can you use them for labor? Um, Same thing with enemy aliens held in uh, custody. What type of treatment do you need to provide to them? Also, for enemy aliens, lots of issues concerning dual nationality. Um, sometimes when these armed conflicts break out, uh, you may have the nationality of the enemy and therefore you're an enemy alien. But what if you also have the nationality of either your own country that you're being held in, or a third country? How do you handle that and think about the relevant rules of international law, of law that apply to uh, those dual nationals? What about diplomatic relations? Uh, When you've got uh, diplomats that are being suddenly seized uh, at the outbreak of the armed conflict when embassy properties are being seized and taken possession of, uh what is the responsibility of the state to uh those uh properties and persons uh when the war breaks out and then just the broader issues of economic loss uh that uh, take place uh obviously war is a horrible uh state of existence between two countries in uh harming individuals and persons but beyond that uh, are the economic Violations where property damage is occurring, uh, bank accounts are being frozen, um, and even more inchoate, uh, economic harm, uh, harm to the tourism industry, harm to the ability of, uh, national airlines to engage in the types of air traffic that they would normally engage in, um, bilateral trade agreements may well go by the wayside during an armed conflict, how do you handle all of those kinds of, uh, losses and injuries, uh, when an armed conflict, conflict breaks out? So I think, um, you know, it's an enormous panoply of, uh, types of, uh, injuries that are associated with uh, a wide range of international law, um, you know, bilateral agreements, multilateral agreements. We've got law of war treaties, we've got human rights treaties, trade agreements. Um, So I think uh, what we tried to do in the book was to really just do a tour de top of those uh, various types of injuries and, and types of international law, not so much focusing on, you know, Ethiopia brought these claims, Eritrea brought these claims, but instead sort of mixing it all up and just talking generally about how the commission handled all of these types of claims no matter which side advance them to try to give uh, a sense of uh, what future tribunals either criminal or civil might be thinking about in the way they approach uh, the law on these issues.
1: And I think some of the issues that, that you have talked about now are things that we would love to continue talking to you about. Aerial bombardment, like you mentioned the economic loss even the denationalization claims, they're all things that your book, of course, uh, covers like you've just mentioned. But, however, we have taken up a lot of your time. You've certainly enlightened us on on the proceedings of the commission, and I think the book is definitely something that uh, I would recommend to read if you want to know anything about the commission. I think your unique insight, yours and, of course, the other two authors, unique insight Uh, into the commission having actually been there is certainly something that gives um, a a sort of dimension to the book that perhaps other literature doesn't have and of course it's all-encompassing characteristic of course is something that stands it in good ground to to be like I said the go-to book so I want to thank you Professor Murphy for a wonderful interview it's been a pleasure talking to you about this I could possibly talk to you all day about it uh, but I hope you've enjoyed it too
0: it's been a great pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. I, I hope that the book is found valuable uh, by others. Uh, certainly there's lots more that could be said about the commission and its achievements, and I hope others do write about it as well. Uh, but uh, I, I, I hope this book is a useful compendium uh, for those interested in this commission, but also in the ways that future commissions might work and uh, future tribunals might be thinking about these issues.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm sure it will be. Uh, So thank you very much and have a good day.
0: Thank you so much.